home slice audio. Welcome to Doc Talk, a weekly podcast featuring Monument Health physicians addressing medical topics. Tune into your health with Monument Health. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of Doc Talk with Monument Health. And joining me again today, Dr. Lauren Jones and Jeanette Carlson, CNP. Welcome back to the podcast, both of you. Thank you. Thank you Thank so you. much for doing this again. You bet. Uh, last time we talked kind of generally about ear, nose, and throat, runny noses, post-nasal drip, that sort of stuff. Things that aren't super serious, I don't think, for a lot of people. Um, but moving into the topics today, these are ones that I know uh, almost any parent with kids have probably had to deal with when it comes to uh, uh, ear infections. Um, tonsillitis, tonsillectomies, sure. removing the tonsils, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, one topic that was uh, presented for this podcast today was uh, pediatric sleep apnea, which I guess maybe like a lot of people, and if you're a parent that aren't experiencing it, think, well, what, what's what's the difference between this and, and adult sleep apnea? And, and I'm surprised most parents probably think their kids never sleep anyway, you know, <laughs> right. and that this probably uh, uh, isn't something serious. But how we'll get right into the, the sleep apnea part about how would you diagnose something like that with kids? Yeah, it's in kids a little different than adults and it may be somewhat based on resources in the local area. So if you're in a big city with a pediatric sleep center, you might get sleep studies in little kids like you do in adults. We don't generally do that. For the most part, it's a clinical diagnosis um, based on the history and we can get a pretty solid um, indication based on uh, symptoms of persistent snoring or parent witnesses pauses or gasping in the breathing during sleep, um, grinding the teeth during sleep, bedwetting beyond the time when the child is potty trained, daytime sleepiness. Those are some of the big ones that we look at in terms of history that can make us pretty concerned that a child has sleep apnea. And then we look at the tonsils on physical exam. If the tonsils are big and they have some of those other symptoms that are pretty convincing, then that's enough to make a diagnosis and proceed with with treatment recommendations. Sometimes if it's unclear, we have them do just an overnight pulse ox where they wear a probe on their finger overnight, a little box on the nightstand records the output, sends us a report and tells us, is their oxygen level dropping fairly often during the night while they're sleeping? And if it is, then that confirms the diagnosis for us. So your oxygen while you sleep can it is supposed to drop a little bit sometimes um, or not? Ideally, it shouldn't. But okay. we would you know without getting too far in the weeds, mm-hmm. if it drops three or four percent um, for a period of ten seconds or so, at least once an hour, that's enough for us to diagnose sleep apnea in a child. Well, and those mm-hmm. you you can anymore you can buy those for off anywhere if your parent right. is kind of worried about it maybe too if would a you... parent wanted to sit and watch yeah, that at home there we I go. think that's reasonable information to add to a discussion with their doctor or with us about something like that and then you know the one we have from the medical side just records those outputs and and the computer looks at it and sends us a report and says how often it dropped and how much and kind of tabulates it for us but same idea so is it is it pretty is it pretty rare for kids to have a sleep apnea i mean is it or or is it more common than even parents would realize yeah i think it's probably more common than parents would realize and and different parents are different there's some parents that are you know really uh, well looking closely at everything and some parents that are not as much and i'm probably in the latter category (laughs) unfortunately but uh, but yeah it it is pretty common we uh certainly get a large number of referrals of children with that concern and fair number of them, you know, end up, you know, needing to get treated for it. I'm very surprised that uh, the tonsils would have, that's a part of it. Yeah. Because I, I guess, you know, having kids and being a kid and growing up, 
when when you hear of kids that have to have their tonsils out, it's usually because of an infection, I believe, or something in there. But I've, I've, I, has it always been connected with a sleep apnea in kids too? You know, um, I'd say probably in the eighties and nineties that became more of a concern. And okay, by the time by the time I was doing my residency in 03 to 07, you know, it had transitioned for sure to where the vast majority of tonsillectomies done in children less than 10, say, are for pediatric obstructive sleep apnea and not for recurrent infections. So when we move into adults, we see more that they've built up a long enough history of recurrent infections that we take them out for that. But in littler kids, it's more, much more common that we do it for, um, for sleep apnea than for infection. Really? Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that was going to be one of my next questions is is how often now are tonsillectomies done on people because it it seemed like growing up every other kid you knew had their tonsils out yeah is that is that still I mean if infections aren't that big of a deal do you guys do you still treat it the same way I guess that's maybe what I'm yeah asking. so I don't think the numbers are as high as they were when people when you talk to people you know your age or a little right. older that were in the you know maybe in the sixties or something where mm-hmm. yeah it was a very low bar to take tonsils out just for oh kid had a couple of episodes of strep throat we're gonna take the tonsils out it doesn't happen that way anymore but the number of tonsillectomies now is I think smaller than then based on a proportion of the population, but has transitioned almost all to be in sleep apnea in the little kids. What uh, what do your tonsils do? What's they're the lymph point? nodes. Oh. So they're, you know, say in your uh, neck and head above the collarbones, you might have uh, several dozen up to over 100 lymph nodes. In the well, the so- doc always feels under your, like mm-hmm. under your chin. Yep, and, there's and, lymph nodes there, and they go all the way down the neck and in the okay. back and up around the back of the skull. And Anyway, um, tonsils are lymph nodes, but they just happen to live inside the throat rather than out in the soft tissues. And yeah. Well, and it seems like, I mean, lymph nodes seem to be important. I mean, they serve a purpose, right? Right. They're part of the immune system. It's interesting. Um, tonsillectomy has not been shown to have any adverse effect on uh, immune response as far as like trying to measure increased numbers of common colds or something after tonsillectomy hasn't been anything that's been shown to be an issue. For adenoidectomy, which are other lymph node that lives right kind of behind your nose, right? Um, there has been maybe a slight association with a slight increased chance of getting a l- like if you were going to have one common cold a year, you might have 1.2 on oh. average after, <laughs> after an adenoidectomy. Sure. So it's a slight difference that they could see over a huge population when they studied it. But. Now, as people get into adulthood and have issues with their tonsils, um, do you do you still be like, yep, we better go in and take them out? You're 52 years old. You've had, you know, some infections or whatever. Do you, do you still recommend it? Can any age have their tonsils out? Let's put it that way. Yeah, I think uh, I've certainly done patients up to in their 70s. Oh, wow. So it's uncommon. Um, mostly we see young adults, uh, and the complaints generally are recurrent infections or just sore throat that kind of just stays there all the time and flares up a little and comes back down. It's maybe not strep throat all the time, but they just have a sore throat that's thought to be due to chronically inflamed tonsils. That's one. Or tonsil stones is another thing, and these are just little collections of yucky debris. It's like food debris and white blood cells and dried mucus and stuff that collects in little physical cavities, little crypts in the surface of the tonsil. And it's just a physical phenomenon where they are rough on the surface and they collect this stuff and then it'll fall out and it it's, uh, doesn't have a nice smell to it. Oh my. And so that's another reason that people seek tonsillectomy. Oh, so what's the, so a sore throat then, speaking of tonsils, is, is there a difference? Can you tell a difference if, if your tonsils are inflamed and hurting other than just, or is, or is that always what a sore throat is, is like the tonsils being 
Oh, not bothered. at all. No, not necessarily. I think a lot of times when you get a, a viral upper respiratory infection and it gives you a scratchy sore throat, your tonsils may be a little inflamed at that time, but but that um, is not really the primary cause. It's more just the mucosal in, inflammation of, of that virus. Tonsillitis can often feel more focal in having just sore throat. You don't have the cough, the runny nose, the other symptoms that go with it, and you'll have just a bad sore throat without the other stuff. Oh, that's well, that's a really good tip. I mean, to kind of maybe when it happens to you and you're like, oh, do I have these? No, okay, maybe it is the tonsils. Let's go in then. Right, yeah. If it's just an isolated sore throat, you're more likely to want to seek care for that. If it's kind of you got the sniffles and a sore throat with it and a little cough, you know, generally give it a week or 10 days if you're not really, really sick to see if it's going to just get better on its own because it's just a cold or whatever. So going from one thing that parents deal with uh, uh, in their kids to tonsil with tonsils to another big one that it seems a lot of parents have to deal with are, are ear infections. It seems like that happens to every single kid. Is, is there anything you can do to make sure your kid doesn't get an ear infection? Is, yeah. Or is it? Yeah, um, breastfeeding. Uh, certainly is protective because of the passive immunity you get from the secreted immunoglobulins that are in breast milk that help protect the baby when their immune system is immature. That's a big one. And then uh, daycare is a bad actor. It really uh, gives kids a lot of infections. They end up with ear infections as part of that. So uh, breastfeeding, yes. Daycare, no. If you're really looking for you know life things that you can do to protect your kid from those kind of ear sure. infections. Okay, so once they get an ear infection, I mean, it's super uncomfortable for a kid, obviously. If you've ever had a kid that has one, you know it's, it's just the worst uh, in some instances. Um, is, can it reach a point, like what's, what's as serious as it can get where you, you really, is it just like any infection? I mean, it, if it's infected, you should go to a doctor and have it, have it checked? Yeah, it's interesting. Like in Europe, for example, they're much less proactive on treating ear infections with antibiotics. And a lot of them, frankly, do, you know, in sort of a treatment model like you might see in Europe or, or, or Great Britain, um, resolve just given a little bit of time. And so they won't treat as early as physicians here will treat mm-hmm. with antibiotics for ear infection. But Regardless, I think that most ch- most children are pretty symptomatic with ear infections, like you mentioned, and it's very reasonable if you've got a kiddo that you think has ear pain if they're a baby or saying they have ear pain if they're a little bit bigger, and especially if they're having some fe- fever with that, it's a good idea to go get it looked at. Well, then a big part of this uh, with ear infections are ear tubes. Yes. I believe that's a part of this, correct? Mm-hmm. When are When does that become necessary? Pediatricians are really good at looking for when that threshold has been met, and there's there's numbers we use. So three infections in six months or four infections in a year are kind of the baseline thresholds when we start to consider recommending ear tube placement. Then what's what's the point? What do they do? Right, so the, um, the children have eustachian tube, which is this structure that kind of people think of a little bit inaccurately sometimes. It doesn't go way down your throat. It's only about an inch long and an adult, inch and a half maybe. It comes from the front edge of your middle ear space inside your eardrum and opens up right behind your nose. It doesn't go deep down your throat. But what it does is that's how the ear drains mucus and also how it gets air in to equalize pressure compared to the ambient surroundings. And um, ear tubes bypass that system, basically. So if you have an ear that's staying chronically inflamed inside, it's never really recovering, maybe it's keeping fluid in there all the time, that's a setup for more infections, uh, then putting in an ear tube 
lets that all be ventilated and drained out and lets that air that ear be properly aerated like it's supposed to because we don't have a lot of great ways to fix the eustachian tube itself we kind of just bypass it with a different vent so how long do you have to have something like that in your ear then the tube stays in on average about a year they're real tiny the the inner diameter of the hole in the oh, tube that i time, use is yeah. about a 1.2 millimeters so they're they're small um the eardrum as it grows it tends to uh push the tube out and so it extrudes naturally after about a year on average. Oh, so you might not even have to go back to a doctor then? You might just, on the pillow one morning, it's... <laughs> a lot <laughs> of people don't even out. know. We, they come in for their six-month check because we check them every six months to make sure things are doing well. And the ear tube's gone, and they didn't know it. Because if they're tiny, it falls off on the floor sure. somewhere, and nobody really knows. <laughs> just gets vacuumed up and thrown away. Yeah. Um, are there are there any restrictions for patients that have ear tubes? Like, what do you tell them don't do, like swimming, for instance? Yeah, Is so... That a thing? Yeah, um, American Academy of Otolaryngology, our national body, does not say that we need to recommend any dry ear precautions, avoidance of water. The thing I only like to recommend is uh, sort of bath water because it has soap in it and that can get through the ear tube a little easier. Um, I try to recommend avoiding that, but swimming pools are fine with no earplugs in. So there really isn't a lot of restrictions with, with, with having the ear tubes in? No, Just, not, not a lot. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I'd like to wrap this one up with uh, a topic that again, affects me. And uh, (laughs) is there any hope that someday we'll figure out just how to stop snoring, how to make it not a thing anymore? I I mean, ask Jeanette. (laughs) Jeanette, okay. How, how does that, so um, why do we do this? (laughs) You know, what I would say about snoring is I think as an adult, the first thing you need to make sure is that you don't have sleep apnea because okay. we've already talked about how it affects your heart. It can cause yeah. pulmonary hypertension. Um, but other than that, it's, a, it's a, again, a quality of life thing, which we've kind of talked. You know, that is a lot of what we deal with in our practice. And when you have a partner who's snoring, it is disruptive to your partner as well. Um, and so there are things that, you know, Dr. Jones does do in the office that does help with that. But I think the first thing is you need to rule out obstructive sleep apnea in adults. And then after that, you know, once we've ruled that out, um, we can do what's called coblation, um, where you basically burn the tissue in your soft palate. And um, oh I know it, it sounds painful. It does sound painful. <laughs> um, now, the soft palate, that's the upper part of your... Is that underneath on the upper part? So if you feel oh, in the right. back, yeah. So if you feel in the back, you have the hard part that's in the front. Yep. And then if you move your finger along the ridge of your upper part of your mouth, you'll feel the soft part of it. Okay. And so what that coblation does is scars that tissue down so that it's essentially not flapping in the wind and decreases is, is the that, snoring. Is that where almost all of the snoring comes from? Is that right there? I mean, when it's, or, or is, there, is there different ins- different things in your in your Mostly that's, I would say that's where, but with the caveat that you have to be very, you know, making sure it's not the obstructive sleep apnea because that, that will cause snoring too. Okay. So. Um, What about all the gimmicks that you see everywhere for ways to stop snoring? And I'll just tell you the ones I've tried. Okay. (laughs) I will say you can try them. I think it's worth a shot. And the only thing that you're out is money. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's it. Just money. (laughs) Um, I mean, cause I've tried the, the ones that go in your nose. Well, basically, those are, I've, I've tried to use in place of, of Afrin to sure. kind of spread mm-hmm. it out, which kind of work, but they're kind of uncomfortable to have in there. I did buy the 
the the mouth guard where you bite into it with and, it, and so you wear it all night and it has a little band that goes across the back of your tongue mm-hmm. is that does that sure. d- does your tongue There's, play into it i mean is yeah. that a part yeah. of it as well for sure there's m- multiple levels that can contribute to sleep apnea and snoring which are basically a continuum of the same disease process snoring is just the milder manifestation of the airway starting to get a little loose and a little constricted and the tissues are floppy and then it starts flapping in the breeze and when that gets worse when you're you know taking a breath in it creates some negative pressure in the throat and kind of things close down and actually stop the airflow so it's just you know continuum of the same disease process but it happens at the level of the palate like Jeanette was talking about with snoring treatments we do in the office it happens at the level of the sort of tonsils and sidewalls of the throat at the tonsil level it happens at the level of the back of your tongue which is what that device was trying to treat okay so it can be multi-level or in some patients it may be just one focal area so what I'm hearing is get another bedroom so that's where you stay and then your spouse is happy because she doesn't have to hear it. I would uh, say if, <laughs> if anybody is in that situation, it is very reasonable to come in and get help just for the snoring side and strongly recommended to come in if you have snoring that's bad enough where you're sleeping in separate beds or somebody's getting kicked to the couch frequently mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, there's a high likelihood that somebody has sleep apnea, and that's a serious medical problem that should be checked out. So uh, is there, I guess, kind of going back a little, is, is there different stages or different levels of sleep apnea that you sure. can have that some aren't as serious as the others? Yeah, and it's ba- it, we just, the, there's mild, moderate, and severe. Um, okay. It ranges, we get, grade that based on, mostly on the number of times per hour that you're uh, stopping breathing or, or decreasing the amount of breathing mm-hmm. that you have the airflow going. So, um, you know, people may have anywhere from a low of like five or six episodes per hour and still be diagnosed with sleep apnea up to some people that have severe sleep apnea may have 100 or 120 times per hour. Oh, my goodness. That they're stopping breathing or decreasing breathing for a period of at least 10 seconds. So that's, that's, you know, close to a majority of the time that they're asleep, they're not getting proper airflow. So uh, uh, the, the the serious side of that obviously comes with a lot of equipment for sleep apnea, right, yeah. to help you sleep. Like mm-hmm. on the moderate side, what can you do or on the less severe side? Are there things so, you can do without? Yeah, there's a few things, and it depends to a great extent on the patient's anatomy. Okay. And so, you know, uh, a thin young person with huge tonsils, you know, 22-year-old, mm-hmm. you know, six foot two, 160-pound dude that snores and maybe has a little sleep apnea with it, taking the tonsils out is likely to fix that. You get into, you know, somebody middle-aged like myself who packing a few extra pounds, very unlikely that little surgery like a tonsillectomy or something would help, and we're almost in that setting, almost always stuck with looking at CPAP. But there are um, oral appliances, like you mentioned, that yeah. are professionally made by dentists generally that... Um, Don't order them from some shady dealer online. No, I mean, if you, you could order them from a good dealer online, sure, probably from a, from a dental office online yeah. that offers that kind of thing. But they do push your mandible forward and pull the tongue forward with it and help with tongue level obstruction. Um, and then there is out now and and really for the last two or three years becoming more popular uh, a thing called a hypoglossal nerve stimulator which is a surgically implanted device that um, put a little electrode around the hypoglossal nerve just under the jaw here which is the nerve that gives innervation to the motor uh, muscles of the tongue and um, you click it on when you go to sleep and it has a also an electrode to monitor when you're taking a breath in at your muscles in your chest And it triggers when you're taking the breath to 
push those muscles in the tongue and turn them on and push your tongue forward so it's not collapsing back. And so people that have a certain severity of sleep apnea, not too severe but moderate, and are not too overweight, that can be a very uh, viable option that a lot of people might find much more appealing even to go and have an actual surgery yeah. than to have to wear a CPAP every night. Sure. Well, that's 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 all. All of this is 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 fascinating, and and you know it, these are things that almost everybody on the planet has experienced at some point. You know, tonsils, ear infections, snoring. Uh, but if you go to a good uh, ear, nose, and throat person uh, like Dr. Jones, you're going to get this stuff fixed. And of course, uh, Jeanette Carlson too. Uh, you knew an awful lot about snoring, and uh, I'm just wondering how 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 acquainted with it are you, uh, Jeanette? Do you? Do you have instances in your family where it might be a thing? Well, I am married. <laughs> okay, there we go. That's so... all you've got to say. <laughs> all right, well, it was great talking with both of you again. Thank Thanks you so, so much. much. Doc Talk with Monument Health is recorded live at Homeslice Studios, hosted by Mark Houston, edited by Russ Haddon, engineered by Chris Jaquis, and produced by Kelsey Kinney and Rob Henry.